know, in the old Puritan churches, I do not remember what they called the guy, but he, he literally had a stick. And if he caught someone in the congregation falling asleep, they went around and pep popped him on the head. And they really did that. And that's not, I'm not joking. They really did that. And, uh, and you might say what that was, but I've read among the Puritans that they, they expected their pastors to preach no less than 90 minutes. And he had to memorize his sermon. They, they typically a lot of times read, but he would have to typically memorize his sermon. And uh, no less than 90 minutes they expected out of their preachers. Well, we must not be very close to Puritans these days uh, because they expect no much more than nine minutes. <laughs> and uh, folks are, are wearing out. So praise the Lord. We're just going to ask God to help us here this afternoon. Let's stand together and read this verse, Matthew chapter 6, and do some sharing. Again, I've been preaching about love and righteousness, and I, I've been emphasizing more so the righteousness but I will be dealing with love a little bit deeper because the, the connections made here I shared with you uh, in this ethic, the ethical standard of the kingdom of God. And I shared with you how that in this business of um, righteousness, he mentions it in this Sermon on the Mount. He mentions the passion for it. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. And then he mentions in, in um, chapter 5 again, he talks about the, uh, this principle of righteousness and how that it's fulfilled in love. And he talks about this righteousness that exceeds and uh, it is the, it's the righteousness of the Father. And then we're dealing with about the pursuit of righteousness. In this verse of Scripture, he says in this verse, verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. All these things shall be added unto you. Unto you, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The pursuit of righteousness. Would you say Amen to God's amen. word? Amen. You may be seated this afternoon. Now, <clears throat> we shared with you a couple of messages from here already, and uh, my buddy go. He's bringing me some. He's got some. Huh? I don't know. I get dry. I've got to keep this thing, my whistle wet or I can't whistle. <laughs> but um, we'll get there in just a second. Thank you, my friend. So in this idea of the righteousness of God, we, we in this verse, seeking the, the kingdom and his righteousness, he doesn't say just seek first his kingdom. He doesn't tell us to seek first his wealth. He doesn't tell us to seek first our health. He doesn't tell us to seek uh, any of those things first. He tells us to seek the kingdom. We'll talk more about what that is a little bit later here this afternoon. But then he tells us to seek his righteousness. His righteousness connected to his kingdom. Now I, I shared with you that connection. We went back over to the Psalms, Psalm 93 through 100. And uh, in those eight Psalms, particularly in the seven and then the, the 100th Psalm becomes a, a response to that. I mean, Psalm 93 through Psalm 99, four times he mentions the Lord reigns. This is his kingdom. If you are going to seek a kingdom and you are going to seek the uh, promotion and the glory and the exaltation or the furtherance of that kingdom, that is, you want that kingdom to progress. You want that kingdom to be expanded. You want that kingdom to be successful. Then in, in, in any kingdom, 
uh, you can, and the problem today is we're trying to seek the success of a nation apart from a moral standard. You can't do that. We think in America that liberty is, is license. We think that liberty is something that it, gets, it, it enables you to do what you want to do. But the biblical concept of liberty is not the freedom to do what you want to do, but the freedom to do what you ought to do. That's the biblical, biblical concept of liberty. Liberty is not license. The prescription tells us, stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made you free. But he says, use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. So liberty is not here for you to satisfy your fleshly uh, uh, passions and your uh, uh, desires. Liberty is here. God gives you liberty. He frees you from sin. He frees you from the dominion of sin, from the enslavement of sin, so that you can do the things you ought. When you are bound in sin, you cannot do as you ought. You can want and you can do this and that. He tells us in Romans chapter uh, uh, 7, he talks about it in Galatians chapter 5, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so that you cannot do the things that you would. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about when I would do good, evil is present. The thing that I choose to do, I don't do, he said. And he said, I find a desire basically to do it, but not the ability to carry it out. And there's that enslavement that God liberates you. And he said, who shall free me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God gives you liberty so you can do what you ought to do. Now, I said that to say, if you are going to be a promoter of a kingdom, then you have got to live by the standard, the righteousness and the moral standard of that kingdom. You are not going to be able to be an advocate for God unless you're in agreement with God. How can two walk together except they agree. You and God is not going to have you to be a promoter of his kingdom unless you live by the same standard he lives. Case in point. Jesus Christ will come into the temple or into the synagogue rather and in the synagogue there will be one there who is possessed of a devil and he will cry out and he will say, we know who you are. The Holy One of God. We know who you are. Basically, Jesus says in our modern-day vernacular, hush and come out of him. Be quiet. Now, why did he tell the devils to be quiet? The devils knew who he was. I mean, why not let the devils absolutely declare? I mean, we know who you are. That was not a false statement, okay? He is the Holy One of God. The devils for that time spoke truth. But it's not considered so much to be truth. Why? Because they don't speak it out of a heart of truth. They don't speak it out of a heart that wants to praise God. The devil doesn't live by the righteous standard of God, so God won't let the devil be his promoter. God will not use the demons to promote the deity of Christ or the announcement of Christ. He will be announced by men like John the Baptist. He will be announced by his disciples. It will be the righteous that will declare God doesn't receive the praise and the worship and the proclamation of those who are living in antagonism against his government, who are living in contradiction to his righteous standards. So you cannot be a promoter of the kingdom unless you live by the laws of the state of the kingdom itself. We saw that. We saw this God who was exalted in majesty. We saw this God who was in his sovereignty and in his, his uh, victory. And we talked about how that ultimately his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. He said righteousness and judgment is the habitation of his throne. In Hebrews chapter uh, 2 or chapter 1, I believe it is, he said, 
because thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. God's anointed you with oil gladness above your fellows. He said, under the sun, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom. He said, the a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. The scepter was a rod. It was a stick that the king would hold out. It became a symbol of his authority, a symbol of what he would permit. And he said, the, it also became the idea of a rod of justice. Justice. Uh, he could wave that rod up or down, determining whether you die or whether you live. Uh, and it became the rod of justice. He talks about God ruling with a rod of iron. That's the scepter. It's the same idea. And he, he holds out that scepter or that rod, and it's a rod of authority and justice. God's kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. It's a kingdom of judgment. And God is ultimately going to judge the earth. And if you're not right, you're not going to be in the kingdom. No, you not that the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Again and again and again we are told in scripture that if you do not live right, you will not be a part of that kingdom. Having said that, we understand this idea. <clears throat> Let's just look now into this verse itself and talk about seeking the kingdom. So I, I've connected at this point, I hope, I have done this effectively to connect righteousness with the kingdom and you cannot seek uh, these things apart from one another. You cannot seek or promote the kingdom if you don't do what's right. But quite frankly, if you're doing what's right, you are in that very act being a promoter of the kingdom of God. If you're doing what is right, you are a promotion, uh, a promoter of the kingdom of God. So uh, I wanted to tie those two together so that you saw the connection between righteousness and the kingdom. Now let's look at the verse itself a little bit. First of all, he begins with this idea of seek. I like that. But seek. Everybody in life has a pursuit. Well, at least uh, some folks do. <laughs> All right. There's a lot of folks today that, uh, uh, I, I hate to say this in our culture, they don't pursue anything, at least anything that's worthwhile, uh, except basically their own listlessness and, and, and basically uh, just sitting around. We in America, it is, I, I, I hear this in so many fronts, of how difficult it is to find people who have a work ethic in our nation to find people who will be there on time, who will do their job, who will do it with uh, 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 as, as a trustworthy person who is dependable and trustworthy and, and they're not going to grumble and complain. I'm telling you, it's a rare commodity in our state and in our nation. It's a rare commodity and it's a time in which Christians ought to be able to shine as the greatest workers that this nation has ever known. In a time of laziness, the church ought to really shine. We ought to really, really shine. And that's a fact of the matter. But seek. Here's this idea that the kingdom is not something that uh, is, is going to be, in some sense, uh, uh, for your part of it, an automatic thing. Uh, you've got to, God is not going to do your work for you, okay? Uh, he wants you to be a promoter of his yeah. kingdom. Now, it's not that God can't do it. It's not that God doesn't do it. But it's the fact that he wants you to enjoy. In America, let's just face it, if one citizen goes down, down, there are other citizens that take the place. God's going to have somebody that's always going to glorify and exalt his name. The question becomes of whether you're going to be a part of that. It isn't a question of whether or not there'll be a church. There'll be a church. Yeah. It isn't a question or not whether the kingdom of God is going to expand. It will expand. Right. The question is, is what will be your part in it? Yeah. 
It's whether or not you'll be a part of the church. The church has always been uh, since Christ formed it on the day of Pentecost. It will not die. It will not be defeated. You won't, you won't drive it out. You won't destroy it. You won't kick it out. I'm telling you, it won't leave this world till he draws it out. Hallelujah. And when he draws it out, it'll leave this world. Unto them, the church will be here. Nations will come and go. The church will remain. Kings will come and go. The church will remain. Presidents will come and go. Elections will come and go. The church remains. Destroy America right now and the church will rise up out of the ashes and build a new nation. It ain't going down. It's that simple. Seek. What is your pursuit in life? What are you chasing after right now? What do you live for? What is your vision? What is your life perspective? Where are you going? Why do you do what you do? What dominates? What is the chief principle, an overriding principle that colors everything in your life? Do you have one? Is it in America? Many times it's the American dream. I want to have the American dream. I want my house. I want my two-car garage. I want my boat. I want my RV. I want my weekends. I want my, my job. I want my retirement nest egg. Hey, I've got the American dream. You die, and it's given to your kids, and they fight over it. And the government taxes a bunch of it, and they don't even get half of it. Okay? What did you do? You spent all your life pursuing something that didn't last. You spent your life, and it governed everything you did. It dictated what you did at work. It dictated how you treated your boss. It dictated how you ran your home. It dictated how you ran your finances. It dictated how you treated other people. Everything was geared to you accomplishing that dream and accomplishing that vision. I'm going there. Let's just face it. If you want to have a, a, a life and your, your idea is to build economic wealth, then you've got to gear yourself for that. And you've got to you gear your home, your finances. You're going to put that in your children. There's a lot of people that are sinners that have instilled in their children good economics, good economic principles, fundamental principles of saving, fundamental principles of spending. And there are, and economically, they are sound and their children are sound, but they are more morally unhealthy. So in the, the question is, is in your life, what is the one thing that is overriding your life and dictating your steps? Where are you going? Why are you going in that direction? And God says, in your life, the priority needs to be my kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Let this be your agenda, that what you want to do is be a promoter of God's reign. You want to promote the kingdom of God. That's what he said in the Psalms. Say among the heathen, the Lord reigneth. The Lord reigneth, hallelujah. The Lord will arise to judge the earth. And, and so in our life, there should be an overriding principle of the kingdom of God. You should be working on your job with the thought of, of advancing the kingdom, not merely earning a paycheck. I am not here just to earn money. I am not here just so I can pay my bills. I'm a servant of the Most High God. God has placed me where I am, and I need to see here how I can advance the kingdom of God by my influence, by my testimony, by my witness, by my practice, how I treat my boss, how I treat others, by my work ethic. Everything is geared with an eye toward advancing and promoting the kingdom of God. Let's just face it, many times that's not what drives us. 
We are driven more by the bottom dollar, the bottom line, than we are by the top king. And we are driven by this. Now, let's face it. I understand it. You got to make money. You got to work. You got to eat. We have to have jobs. We have to labor. God doesn't put us here to be late. We understand that. It's not sometimes even the things you do. It's the perspective with which you do them. It's the purpose for which you do them and the attitude that you have in doing them. The world works, we work. We work at the same places. We shop at the same stores. We eat the same food. We go to the same restaurants. We do many times. Now, there are certain things in the world they do, we don't do. Right? There are certain places they go, we don't go. There are certain things they say, we don't say. But given a large portion of what the world does, we do the same thing. Right. Okay? We have to eat, we have jobs, we drive cars, we go on vacations, uh, uh, we, we cook food, we go to restaurants, we go to Walmart, we, we go to Food Line, whatever, we go to Piggly Wiggly, whatever it is. We go to this store, we go to that store, we buy clothes, and, and, and we're, we're all not wearing clothes today that were made back in the 1800s, okay? We're wearing clothes that, that basically, in some sense, uh, are, are, are in fashion or in vogue today. We, we, uh, you can only wear a shirt so long, it wears out. And, and basically, what's going to be down there, you're either going to have to make it or you're going to have to find one that's going to fit God's more modest principles, but you go, you wear the same, uh, uh, again, we, we dress by different standards, but we can use some of the same styles, but we have uh, 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 the same kind of uh, uh, cars and automobiles that we drive and work in the same jobs. We use the same electricity. We have the same utilities. We carry the same cell phones. All of these things are the same, but what's the difference in our life? We have something else that motivates us. Uh, first of all, our God is not mammon. Our God is not wealth. We are not in pursuit of wealth here on this earth. We are in pursuit of the glory of God. We are not working our job just so we can earn money. We are working our job with an eye towards uh, glorifying and honoring God. Ephesians chapter 4 says labor to give. We are laboring so we have something to give. A man that doesn't labor is going to have to take from others. If you don't work, you're going to have to get your food somewhere and you will be a taker and not a giver. He said labor to give. We labor so we can pay our tithes, so we can get an offerings, so we can bless others, so we can meet the needs of our family. We work and labor to do those things. But our perspective is, is how does all of this connect in the kingdom of God because we are here to promote his glory. Amen. Having said that, now let's, let's watch this a little bit. What is the primary way in which this is done? Let's look uh, a little bit earlier in this same chapter. He tells us before we get here, he tells us the primary way uh, and, and attitude that seeks his kingdom. And it is through, through this business of prayer. Through this business of prayer. Chapter 6, please. Now, he has mentioned prayer actually several times throughout the passage. I want to note those times, and then I'm coming back to chapter 6 and verse 9. I, I want you to note, first of all, he talked about coming before God, uh, sacrificing, which probably also involves prayer. Back in chapter 5 in Matthew, when he talks about you come to the altar, leave your, you remember your brother has ought against you, leave your gift before the altar, go and be reconciled to your brother. So basically, God is saying your prayers are your worship and your sacrifice aren't going to do any good if you're on the outs with your brother. And so he mentions it there. Then he mentions prayer in chapter 6 and talks about how we are not to pray. We are not to pray as the hypocrites. We don't, we don't pray to be seen of men. We pray to be seen of God. We don't use vain repetitions because God doesn't hear us just on the, on the basis that we speak a lot 
or that we repeat it a lot. He's not deaf, number one. And God is not a self-centered God. God is thinking about you. And God knows what you have need of. That's what he mentions in chapter 6 and verse 8. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things you have need of before you ask him, but he still says for you to ask. One of the reasons is because it, it keeps you in mind of who he is and your place. Our children, you know, we can have them in, in the house and there might be a cookie there that we're willing to give them, but we don't just let them take it. Yes, you live in this house. Yes, you are blessed in this house. But if you have that, you'll ask for it. Yes. And asking, asking is a way in which God can do things and not appear to be, to show favoritism. If he just gave us things without asking, we wouldn't appreciate them very much, number one. We wouldn't see the need for them. We wouldn't be on board with what he's doing. Okay, when you ask God for something, then you're understanding God's will. When you ask God for something, you have to know something about God. You just can't ask God anything. You can't expect God to answer anything. I mean, my children can come to me and say, Daddy, we would like you to give us $100,000. I don't care how, how many times they ask it. I don't even care how much I may want to give it. They ain't getting it because I don't have it. In other words, it would be fruitless for them to ask something that's an impossibility for me to produce. And then there's times that they've come, they've asked me. I remember my children as, as they're growing up. And uh, I remember they would come and they would ask me for things and, and, and sometimes they would ask me to do something and I would, I would have to say no because I felt that was in the best interest and that was what I needed to do and I would look at my children and I would say, no, you cannot do that. Well, immediately what would begin was, no, 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 no. I've told my children this. I said, not in my house. You're my children. You're not beggars and you're not bums. You don't have to beg, Daddy. If it's a good thing, I'll give it to you. If I can, I'll give it to you. But if I deny you your petition, I got a good reason to do so. And no amount of argument and no amount of uh, patronizing, no amount of flattery, no amount of begging, no amount of tears is going to change my mind. Okay? So you just, well, dry your tears and accept the answer. God will not be manipulated by your emotions. That's right. Say, oh, if we cry enough, God will do it. No, sir, if it isn't good for you, he ain't giving it to you. No, sir. Now, he might, if you're foolish enough to keep asking, he might just let you have it and let you drown with it. But I'm telling you, God is a good God, and we don't have to manipulate him. We can't manipulate him. He's not a God that's moved. That's what we do. Our children come, Daddy, can I do this? No, you can't do that today. Please, well, maybe so. You've just told your children that you can be manipulated through crying and whining. You've just taught your children that if they cry, they can change your mind. So that your decisions are not based on principle, they're based on your child's reaction. Hello? God is not going to give to you based on your reaction and your emotion. He's going to give to you based on your faith and your knowledge of his plan. If you are asking in his will, if you are praying, he knows what you have need of. The question is, do you know what you have need of? 
And if you know what you have need of, then you can ask for God, and God knows what you have need of. I guarantee you it's going to happen, all right? God's going to give it to you. God's going to do what is right because it's a need that you possess. But if God just gives us something and we don't ask, it might look like he favors some over others. It might look like God has, look what he's done over there. But if we say, and God blesses this person, and, 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 we, and we say, well, look, God, they're getting blessed. And God says, they ask me. You try asking me. You can have the same. He's given that to all of his children. Ask and you shall receive. Now, we're not, let's get out of the carnal mind here. Let's get rid of some kind of mindset that says, oh, he's a prosperity preacher. I am a spiritual prosperity preacher. God's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. I believe in your, I wish, beloved, that thou mayest be good health and prosper even as thy soul prospereth. I am a spiritual prosperity preacher because I believe God wants you to grow spiritually. I believe God wants you to be healthy spiritually. I believe God wants you to be whole morally and healthy morally. I believe that God wants you on fire. I believe God wants you full of victory. I believe God wants you full of joy. I believe God wants you full of peace. I believe God wants you full of goodness. I I believe God wants you full of his love. I want, believe God wants you full of faith and full of wisdom. I believe that. God wants you to prosper in the spiritual things he's given you. So this is not some carnal pursuit. God's not a genie. All right, he's not some wave of magic wand because you and I say, oh, I want to be rich. And if you'll just say it right, you'll get rich. You, my friend, have got a wrong perspective of the kingdom. Your God is mammon and not God. We don't serve mammon. We're not in pursuit of mammon. We're in pursuit of God's glory. God is glorified when you are wise. God is glorified when you are happy. God is glorified when you are at peace in the midst of trouble. God is glorified whenever you uh, kneel and in the midst of, of, of a bombardment by the enemy, you ask God and believe him and he gives you an answer. He is honored by your trust. He is honored by your calmness and by your coolness under the fire of, of the enemy. He is honored by that it makes him look like a good father what father is not honored by an obedient child? What father is not honored by a child who reflects the father's character? I'm honored if my children do good. I'm honored if my children do well. I'm dishonored if they don't do well. And you and I reflect on the father according to our faith and activity. Now, so we're going to look at this prayer. He tells us to pray. He will mention it again over in uh, chapter 7. He will talk about it again, asking, and you shall receive. Um, he talks about everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. Verse 8 of chapter 7. And to him that knocketh, it shall be open. Or what man is there of you, whom if a son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Do you believe that? Yeah. That wasn't written by charismatic, all right? That wasn't written by Kenneth Copeland. Don't let him steal it and make some carnal thing out of it. That was written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, spoken by the Son of God himself, and he said, your Father will give good things to those that ask him. The question is, do you ask him for a good thing? That becomes the question. Now, so let's look at this prayer. So he said, after this manner, pray thee. Back to Matthew chapter 6. And he says, after this manner, therefore pray ye. We can divide this prayer into three things about this, about God that you're going to pursue. Number one, God's government. Number two, God's grace. And number three, God's glory. 
All right, God's government, God's grace, and God's glory. Now let's deal with the first one. Here's where I'll, I won't get beyond this today. First of all, God's government. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's it right there. That's the first section of this prayer. And that first section of prayer deals with God's government. Now, I want you to see this. Our Father which art in heaven. Here's the first, first realization that prayer. Now, this is not a prayer. It's okay if we repeat it. I, I repeat it. You ought to be able to say it. You ought to know it so you can think about it, so you can meditate it. If you haven't memorized that, you should. It's called the Lord's Prayer. It's recited all over the place in churches. They recite it all the time. But you can recite it and get nothing out of it. Mm -hmm. It isn't the recitation of the prayer that is meaningful. It is the, the instigating of the principles and the application of the principles that are in the prayer. If you believe that and if your prayer is promoting these things, Christ is not giving us a formula. He's giving us a model. He's not giving us just something that is filled with magical words that if we say the magic things will take place. He's giving us a principled model that you and I can follow that our prayer needs to have these things in it. And the first thing you recognize in prayer is that you living on earth need heaven. All of earth's problems is the result of one thing. We've divorced ourselves from heaven. When earth ignores heaven, earth gets in trouble. Yeah. Amen. Whenever earth tries to live by earth's rules instead of heaven's rules, earth becomes a place quite contrary to heaven. If you want heaven's peace, if you want heaven's blessings, if you want heaven's morality, if you want heaven's joy, and there's joy there. I mean, I don't, when you think about heaven, what, what do you know about heaven? What has the Bible told us about heaven? Well, we, we know it's a place of joy. We know that. I mean, there's rejoicing going on there. It's a place where men, where, where, well, men are now, but there are, are praises unto God. It's a place of delight. Uh, when certain things happen on earth, there's a lot of joy in heaven. The Bible talks about when one sinner repents, there's joy. There's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't know about you, but I don't have a, bit, a concept of heaven that is, that it's boring. That it's like humdrum. Or it's like, I mean, can you see an angel? Can you see this glorious angel, Michael, up there like, oh, God, you're so boring. <laughs> oh, I wish I had something to do. Oh, I wish I could go somewhere besides heaven. We're all yearning to get there. Yeah. We know it's far above this planet. Not merely in position, but in quality. <laughs> I mean, heaven is the representation of everything good we know. We never use it as a curse word. We use the other place is used as a curse word. We don't use curse words, period. But the other place, hell, is used as a curse word. But heaven, we don't use that as a curse word because we don't, we're not, heaven is a pronunciation of good. And if you're going to curse someone, you don't pronounce good on them. So you want to send them to the place of torment, not the place of blessing. 
And so heaven is a place that, but, but the thing about heaven is that we often don't realize. Yes, heaven's a place of joy. It's a place of pleasure. It's a place of glory. It's a place of peace. It's a sinless place. But that's the key thing about it. Heaven is heaven because God's will is done there. Yes, heaven is heaven because God is first. Heaven is heaven because God is glorious. Heaven is not heaven because of its location, because of whatever buildings may be there, because of whatever thrones may be there. It's not heaven because of the objects that are there we have a lot of objects here that are patterned after objects there we have a lot of things here that may even be there it's not things that makes heaven it is the will of God that is done it is the glory of God that is performed there heaven is heaven because God is first Amen. in heaven it's called his throne heaven is his throne now so Here's the thing. We are on earth, and our desire is not so much that we may take earth to heaven, but that we may bring heaven to earth. But isn't that what prayer is doing? Prayer is looking at earth's situation and realizing it needs heaven's intervention. You can't sustain earth without heaven you can't sustain you without heaven glory to God we used to sing a song heaven came down and glory filled my soul <laughs> when at the cross the Savior made me whole heaven came down glory came down every sense about the Christian in prayer when I go to prayer I am looking in about God's government and the first thing I realize is I need God I need heaven I don't want to devote Divorce earthly activity from heavenly principles. That is what governs me. I am governed from above, not from beneath. Right. It's what Jesus was constantly telling them. He would look at the crowds and say, I'm from above, you're from beneath. The only one that's ascended up to heaven is he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. He says, and that's exactly what he says in John chapter 3. He said, except ye be born, the word uh, translated again there is later translated in the same passage above. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Literally, it is not so much born again. That's, that's not bad. That's, that's, that's a, a, a sense of it because there is, it is like a second birth. But it is being born from above. I need a birth that connects me to that place oh hallelujah I am made a child of God I'm a son of God he has birthed us he's begotten us uh, unto a lively hope hallelujah he's begotten us by the word of God the Bible said he has birthed us into his kingdom that was John's uh, uh, a statement and John's way he talked about us that we're birthed uh, into this thing as many as received him they them gave you the power to become the sons of God even to them which believe on his name which were born not of man not of the flesh not of the will of man but by the word of God, hallelujah, we are birthed by God's word. He speaks that seed into our heart and we become children of God. And as children of the Father, we are connected to the Father's dwelling place. That's what he said back in chapter 5, that do this, love this way, be this way, so you can be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's the hallowed be thy name? The word hallowed is often translated sanctified. It comes from a root word, which means to be holy. 
So you could say this, sanctified be your name. Holy be your name. Hallowed, reverent be your name. Now, here's the thing that prayer is seeking to accomplish. Prayer's first consideration is, number one, I need heaven. This is all involved in his government. But number two, prayer is saying, God, I don't want any stains on your name. How many of you know when you come into this life, you really get one name? Sometimes, God does, in that sense, give us a second chance. And, but you know what? When you get saved, and if you've had a history of sin, a long history of sin, it could take a long time to redeem your record. You know what? You can make it, God will make instant changes in your life. But the world is not going to all of a sudden just, you know, you're, you have to show it to your boss. It'll take you a while to prove out your character and to prove out your name. But basically your name is a statement. It is a one word label that identifies your integrity. When somebody says to you, Gary Brown, what does that mean to you? When someone says to you, Michael Cotto, what does that mean to you? What image is conjured up in your mind when you hear the name Michael Cottle? When you hear the name Benny Mazel, what is image? Does what kind of man comes to your mind? You have to know something behind that name. And prayer is considering what is this going to have when I'm asking this Lord, I'm concerned about your name. I'm concerned about whether or not your name is right. I don't want any stains on it. I don't want any black marks on it. Hey, we've all got some black marks on our name here and there. All right, we've got some stains on our name. We've got some things that are in our history that have left a scar, that have left a stain on our name. But God has none. Glory to That's why you should go with such faith, knowing that God is ready to answer a man of prayer. God's got a perfect track record when it comes to answered prayers. He hasn't forgotten any. He hasn't left any undone. Woo! Glory to the Lamb of God. A prayer that's in His will, a prayer that promotes His kingdom, a prayer that promotes His glory. God has not left any of them unanswered. Oh, praise the Lord. He has no black mark on His name. He has no stain on His name. And your consideration is to keep that record clean. Oh, God, I want your name to be holy. I want your name to be sanctified. I want you to know I am coming to you in consideration, not of my name, or my reputation, but your name. Too many times our prayers are concerned about our reputations and not God's reputation. Thy kingdom come. We've got a little bit of time, about 15 minutes here, so follow me now. Thy kingdom come. Are you with me? Say amen. Amen. What does that mean, thy kingdom come? Thy kingdom come. Let's look at a couple of verses. Let's look at a verse. I think it's Matthew chapter 12. Let me get the right passage here. They will come to Christ in verse 24, Matthew 12 and 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by B 
Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Now Christ will go on to tell of Satan's divided against Satan. How shall then his kingdom stand? Verse 26, verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. What was the prayer? Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. And Jesus said, if I cast out devils by the spirit of God, then the kingdom is come unto you. Let's look at a passage in Luke 10. Luke's gospel, chapter 10. Verse 8. And into whatsoever city ye enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein. And say unto them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. What is this, thy kingdom come? What is that a prayer for? It is number one, a request for a manifestation of God's power. If I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, that is the Spirit of God who brings the power, cast out the demon. Jesus said, I cast him out, but it's by the Spirit of God. Then the kingdom has come. The Spirit brings the power and cast out the demon. The Spirit comes and touches and somebody is healed. That's power. That's supernatural power. You can't cast out devils by, by some guru getting in the corner and rubbing a hand over a magic ball or pushing out a tarot card or, or, or saying some kind of thing and, and cast out a devil. It takes spiritual power to cast out a spiritual power. It takes a spiritual authority to cast out another spiritual authority. And this is a request for the power of God. Again, in, uh, I think it's in uh, 1 Corinthians it mentions, and the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. Yeah. It's not in word, but in power. There, there are some uh, people who express their authority just in word. Yeah. But they don't back it up with power. Power, a word, uh, a law, an authority that is expressed only in principle is no authority at all. Let me, let me explain that. So you as a father, you say, son, if you do that, I'm going to punish you. He does it and you do nothing. Your word is meaningless. Right. You, you made a statement. You gave a word. Mm -hmm. You uttered, uttered a precept. Mm -hmm. If you do that, I'm going to punish you. And then he does it, and he says, well, I don't know that I can do that, and I'm afraid to do it. You have no power. You have no authority. Your word is meaningless. The law is only meaningful when it is authoritatively enforced. If you say to your son, son, if you do that, then I'm going to have to discipline you. He does it, you reach for the rod. And you lay it across his backside about three good times and you let him know, I have the authority to back up my word, okay? In other words, the kingdom here is a kingdom that is backed up with real power. And I'm telling you, God's kingdom is not a kingdom that is simply a, a paper tiger. It is not a kingdom that's just written down in word. I'm telling you, oh, hallelujah, behind this holy book is a living being. Woo! 
glory. And if God says he heals, he heals. If God says he answers prayer, he answers prayer. If God says he judges, he judges. If God says he's coming, he's coming. If God blesses, he blesses. If God curses, he curses. Whatever God says, it comes to pass because his kingdom is not a paper tiger. It's not simply something that is a written creation. It's living, it's real, and it's powerful. Because that's the person of God. God is power. Woo, hallelujah. He's a God of might. He's a God of strength. He's clothed with strength, the Bible says. Woo. Again, you're back to heaven. You can't do well on earth without heaven's power. The natural is not enough to sustain the natural when evil is against it. I need supernatural. Hallelujah. I need heaven's intervention. Thy kingdom come is a request for God to bring his supernatural divine power to bear upon a natural world. Oh, Lord. In this world, there's a malady. In this world, there's an infirmity. In this world, there's an enemy. In this world, Lord, there's a weakness. I'm here and I have a need and nature's against me and the enemy's against me. I have no ability to produce it. I have no ability to satisfy it. But there's a hand. Oh, glory. Thy kingdom come. Bring your power, dear God. Bring your power to bear upon my life. Now, I, I, need, to, I need to ask you to, to bear with me a second as I, as I back up here a moment. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God has... There's a, a two-fold sense to the kingdom, a dual sense to the kingdom of God. It is a present reality. It has a present visibility. There is a present demonstration of the reality of this kingdom. God's kingdom is not imaginary God's kingdom is not something that's magical and, 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 and some fantasy. It's real. It's real. It's tangible. It's touchable. And it has a visible expression. I'll get to that in just a second. The kingdom is seen through various ways. And the first way is it's seen in the demonstration of God's power. Now, again, there's a present expression of the kingdom. Jesus said, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, the kingdom has come unto you. And I'm going to show you some other verses that indicate that, that this idea of the kingdom is ours now. He tells the church, the church is the present visible expression of the kingdom of God. How do we know God reigns? The church demonstrates that. If the church isn't living right, and if the church isn't pursuing God's righteousness, it doesn't look like God's reigning. Because where God reigns, righteousness reigns. Where God rules, there's holiness. Where God rules, there's, there's goodness. Where God rules, there's kindness. Where God rules, there's peace. Where God rules, there's truth. Where God rules, there's holiness. Where God rules, there is this sense of his glory, his adoration, his worship. That's where God rules. He said to the church in Matthew chapter 16, he said to that group of disciples, he said, behold, I give unto you the keys of the kingdom. 
We as the church possess the keys. The authority of Christ's kingdom is presently seen in the church, in the realm, in the spiritual and the moral realm. We do not possess God's authority in the civil realm. That's given to the state, and that's also God's God's uh, uh, expression of God's kingdom in only in His authority. Really, not so much His kingdom, but His authority is expressed by civil leaders. That power is there because God has given it and God has delegated it. But the keys of the kingdom and the living expression of the kingdom is the Church of Jesus Christ. We are to demonstrate to this world what it means to live under God's government. Our, the church, right here, look out there, brother, there's no peace out there, but there better be peace here. There's no joy out there. What about here? Because the kingdom of God has a present expression and that is seen in the church of Jesus Christ, but it has a future fuller fulfillment. Revelation chapter 12. When the devil's cast down, he said, now has come the kingdom of our God, or the kingdom of his Christ. Christ talks about, in Matthew chapter 25, when he comes back to the earth, he judges between the sheep and the goats, and he says, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He said after his resurrection, he looked at his disciples, and he said, or actually before his resurrection, before his crucifixion, and upper, he said, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of God. And he did not do that after he rose from the dead. He's talking about drinking it in the millennial reign with the church of Jesus Christ. That millennial reign will be the full expression of Christ's kingdom because he will be visibly reigning on the earth. He will spread that reign throughout the whole earth. He will be seen visibly. You and I as the church will rule with him. And what's going to be the earmark of that kingdom? There's 20-some things that the Bible talks about. I'm not going to go through all 20 of them. I can't even recite them right now anyway. But what we know things that are happening in that kingdom. One of the things is universal peace. He said there'll be no army, no standing army. He said they'll learn war no more. They'll bring, beat their swords and weapons into plowshares. They'll break down the metal they used to fight coming out of the army uh, uh, with the uh, Antichrist and he said, uh, and all the, the swords that are left from all of that, they'll beat them down and make plows out of them to plow the field because there'll be no instruments of war. There'll be no tanks. There'll be nothing in that kingdom that speaks of war. There will be peace in the animal kingdom. The wolf and the lamb are going to play together. The children can play on the whole of the asp. There will be peace in the streets. The, the old men and the, and the children can play in the streets without any fear of molestation. There will be an increase of health. There will be an increase of light. The light will be increased seven times. Health will be increased throughout the world. Righteousness and the knowledge of God is going to fill the earth. Woo, glory to God. There will be nobody that's an atheist in the millennial reign. Glory to the Lamb of God. There will be no promoters of evolution. There will be no atheistic thought or think tanks why? Because the God of glory reigns in Jerusalem and you can go over there and see him. And if you don't believe he's God, let him call fire out of heaven. Oh, glory to the Amen. Lamb of God. He will shut up the heavens against a nation that doesn't pay their tithes. Yeah. Yeah. The earth, the reaper overtakes the sower. The earth brings forth with such bounty and plenty. It's astounding. The spirit of God is poured out throughout all of the earth. There's peace. There's contentment. There's righteousness. Sin is at a minimum. Any sin living in such light, 
anybody that commits any gross sin living in such light will be immediately judged with a rod of iron. Because when there's great light, you can have swift justice. You commit adultery or murder somebody in that environment, but you, your heart's beyond repair, and God will immediately judge you. It will happen, but very small. Lifespan will be increased. The child, if he dies, will be 100 years old. If you die at the age of 100, you will have died young. Now, we won't die. We'll have glorified bodies. But natural people that come out of the tribulation and enter into the millennial reign, and, and they're living. If you are at 100 and you die, and there will be people die, but if you die at 100, you will have died young. If you die at 100 now, buddy, we said, well, you ain't got nothing to complain about. <laughs> you know, you got, you got 30 more than God promised. I mean, you're, you're doing all right, okay, buddy? If you made it 100 years. So the point is, is there's a full expression, but there's a present expression. And so the kingdom of God is presently seen. But what is it that we have now of the kingdom of God? What do we possess now? We're in that kingdom. We are under the reign of Christ. What is it that we possess? And it's seen in three things. The first thing that I've showed with you is it's God's power. The power of the kingdom is here now. There's power to heal. There's power to cast out devils. He said, behold, I give you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. He said, I've given you power over all the power of the enemy. Do we believe that or not? How can we look at our enemy and cower down when greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world? And we, you and I must look at the enemy and say, you have no power over a child of God. That power is ours. We walk in such weakness. We walk in such timidity. We walk in such backwardness. We walk in such cowardliness. We need to start praying for the kingdom to come. Woo, glory. Oh, Lord, that kingdom where the spirit cast out devils, where the sick are healed, where the word of God goes forth with power and brings conviction in the hearts and the lives of people. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your government come. Display the power of your eternal government. Display the power. Of your kingship and your throne. One more quickly. Luke 17. Luke 17. I'm about to close. Y'all have done pretty good this afternoon. I commend you. We're talking about thy kingdom come. Chapter 17 and verse 20. Luke. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. What does that mean? The word observation means a critical, scrupulous watching. In other words, if you're a critic and you're just there to, oh, well, let me just see this thing. To see if you're the, you know, they said this to, well, if y'all be the son of God, just come down off the cross. Well, you know, he said, you, you would have me speak this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Just, he said, the kingdom of God doesn't come, basically, by some critical observer who is there that God's got to prove it to him. God don't have to prove you anything. He owes you nothing. It doesn't come with observation, the scrupulous observance. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God 
is within you. Now, I've talked about this before. The word within here is best translated in this sense. It's in the midst of you or it's among you. He was not looking. Now, remember, he is talking to critical Pharisees, hypocritical Pharisees. He certainly is not going to tell them the kingdom is within them. That would not make any sense. Some people take this verse and say, the kingdom of God is within us. I don't know that it's so appropriate for me to say the kingdom is within me than it is to say, it's more appropriate to say I'm in the kingdom. The king is in me. In that sense, the kingdom is. But more so, I'm in the kingdom. But he, when Jesus said this, he says the kingdom doesn't come with observation. He said, matter of fact, it's not going to be with the cause they say low here or low there. He said the kingdom's in your midst right now. What did he mean? The kingdom is in your midst right now. He was talking about himself. He's the king. Amen. Wherever the king is, the kingdom is. Right. <laughs> Ooh, glory to God. It doesn't mean every person of the kingdom is there, but all of the kingdom is there. Wherever the king is, all of his authority is, all of his power right. is, all of his will is, all of his goal. Wherever the king is, you got the kingdom, bud. And he said, here you are. You're looking for some sign out of the sky. You're looking for some scrupulous, oh, yeah, I see, okay. Oh, that's how the kingdom's going to come. The king is in your midst. Yeah. The kingdom is standing right in the midst of you and you don't even see it. Woo, glory to the Lamb of God. The kingdom is, a, the prayer for the kingdom is a prayer that requests God's presence. We want the king among us. Glory. That's what we want. So we pray for services like this morning. We pray that God's spirit will be manifest among us. That when people come, hey, they may leave here and they may say, oh, wow, I'll tell you what, I didn't know what to do in that place. I, I, I don't know. That kind of took me back a little bit. Let it be that. But let them know one thing. God's in the house. Oh, glory to God. I was talking to this brother the other day. A lot of folks want to say, oh, their emotion scares me. It amazes me that religion, religion, emotion scares them but a ball game's emotion doesn't scare them an emotion at the hockey rink doesn't seem to scare them an emotion down the dance hall doesn't seem to bother them they don't get bothered when someone wins the lottery and gets emotional but they just don't attribute or connect that same emotion to the great salvation of God but I say God manifest your glory their problem is not the emotion it's the conviction their problem is not the shout it's the sin that's in their heart and they couldn't deal with that soul glory and the Holy Ghost moves he convicts of sin and righteousness yes. and judgment and I'm telling you the righteous God is on the throne that kingdom come yes. is a prayer that God will demonstrate his government by a manifestation of his presence in the midst of the church Woo, glory. that kingdom come is a cry for his power it's a cry for his presence it's a cry for his precepts Press of scripture, we'll close here. Romans, please, chapter 14. Romans, chapter 14. You know the verse. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. How do we demonstrate the kingdom of God? By living by the kingdom's precepts. The kingdom is not something that's caught up 
in ceremony. Many religions are known for their ceremonies. That ceremony is the entire expression, certain foods. If you're a Hindu, you don't, if you're Orthodox, some Hindus do. But if you're really devoted, the cow is sacred. You don't eat beef. Their view of life is circular. Our view of life is linear. It has a beginning and it goes straight with no ending. There's a circular. It just keeps going around circles. You're a man now. You're a frog in the next life. You're a cow in the next one. You're a man. You're a god. Whatever. It's just a circle going around in circles. But their kingdom or rather their their religion is expressed by a ceremony. Now we do have certain rituals in the people of God. We baptize in water. We celebrate the Lord's Supper and communion and feet washing. We have the Lord's Day. There's a certain day of the week that we meet. There are those things that, that do become identifying factors, but that's not it. You can have all of that. You can be baptized in water. You can eat the bread and drink the cup. All right, you can, you can uh, uh, go down and, and wash the feet and, and do all of that. You can go to church every Sunday and still die and go to hell. That's not what makes you a Christian. Christian. What makes you a Christian? Those things are there as, as, a, as a demonstration or they are there giving some expression. But the real expression of the kingdom of God, it isn't in food, it isn't in a ceremony, it isn't in what kind of what meat I'm eating or what drink I'm drinking. It is in the righteousness of God that has lived in my life. The love of God that fills my heart and fulfills the law of God. When love fills the heart, the law of God is fulfilled and that's the righteousness. Out of that righteousness comes peace and out of that peace and righteousness comes joy it's righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Ghost when the precepts of God are performed and lived and practiced by the people of God then the world is seeing a visible demonstration of the kingdom we ought to show them this is what it will be like to live in the millennial reign you'll live this way you'll worship this way oh hallelujah you'll be filled with the Holy Ghost you can know the healing power of God. You will be completely victorious. There'll be peace in your life. There'll be joy. There'll be happiness. Oh, hallelujah. And the knowledge of God will fill the earth. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be. How do you seek the kingdom? You ask for it. You pray for it. God, we are on earth and we need heaven. Your name is going to be scarred if you don't intervene. Oh, Lord, bring your kingdom and let men do your will. Hallelujah. You seek the kingdom when it is a constant thing being pursued in your prayer life. A pursuit of heaven's glory. A pursuit of God's will. A pursuit of his presence, his power, and his precepts.